CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. From fairy tales to Harry Potter, from Avatar to James Bond, we love fantasy and expect our books and films to take us there. Yet at the same time, we also want our poems and plays, novels and movies to reflect life and reality. So should our narratives be seeking to uncover reality or be seeking to escape from it? Or are both of those goals impossible? Are we on the one hand unable to create a narrative that tells it how it is, and on the other incapable of making a fantasy that does not reflect our current circumstances? In exploring whether narratives should reflect or escape from reality, we will be joined by director and producer of The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, Sophie Fiennes, leading figure in contemporary philosophy of art, Noel Carroll, and myths expert, Betty Sue. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to the host for our debate, Mark Salter. Hello, and welcome to Fantasy and Reality. And uh, today we'll be looking at the very interesting and very human phenomenon of narrative. Well, we have three people joining us for the debate this afternoon, who I think are very well positioned to try and, uh, you know, breathe some sense into this rather confusing subject. First of all um, is filmmaker Sophie Fiennes, I think a film director, producer. Uh, she was also the producer of one of my all-time favourite psychiatric must-watches, The Pervert's Guide to the Cinema, which is written and presented by the philosopher and psychoanalyst Slovak Zizek. Betty Sue Flowers has been a pioneer of the psychological appreciation of mythology, alongside the esteemed Joseph Campbell, with whom she worked for many years in a very productive collaboration. Betty Sue explores in her work the influence of what these myths and stories have in our lives today. And Noel Carroll is a distinguished professor of philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Centre. He's known as one of the most important contemporary figures in the philosophy of art. Should our narrators be seeking to uncover reality or seeking to escape from it? Becky Sue, I wonder if I could ask you to start with the, uh, the opening lines of your pitch. When my son was about five, he said, Mom, is there anything bigger than infinity? And I said, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so, because infinity is all of reality. There's nothing bigger than all of reality. But the next day I asked a mathematician friend of mine the same question. And he said, oh, sure. In set theory, infinity plus one. So I think of narrative as the plus one of infinity, of reality. It neither uncovers or escapes. It creates reality, the extra plus one. Now, reality is really weird, very weird. We have such limited equipment to access it. We have our senses, we have math, which is even weirder than reality in some respects because the mathematicians play their little games and then a hundred years later, we see, wow, that it's their games that they played totally d distinct from reality actually map on to reality. 
And we're here in Zoom world uh, because of ones and zeros. So reality being as strange and as estranged from us and our limited equipment to access it, narrative becomes really important. It's the plus one. It creates reality. We live in story. We can't experience our lives apart from narrative. We're the storytelling animals. We can't live in math. We live in stories. So we even dream in stories. And our life is a story because it ends in death. It has a beginning and a middle and an end. And that's what gives it meaning. So I have a hard time with both uncovering and escaping because I think we are creating realities through our stories that have never existed before and have always existed before because that's the nature of reality. You can't escape it. You can't uncover all of it. We're infinity plus one, where the plus one of infinity narrative is. So I'll just stop there. No, I want to hear your pitch. I think I agree, at least in certain respects, with uh, Betty Sue. Uh, I'm a little uneasy with the distinction between realism or fantasy, escapism or discovery. Sometimes fantasy actually in virtue of uh, its capacity to depart from realism actually uncovers reality. I, I think especially of Rod Serling, he's famous for the Twilight Zone. In his career, he wanted to make uh, more or less a series of critical social TV programs, but was blocked because of the advertisers. But he discovered that he could actually restage these things in the Twilight Zone he also did it with his script for Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes addresses all kinds of questions of, of social justice, of, of enslavement, of the education of the enslaved. But it does it in a very interesting way, which is what fantasy genres can do. It puts it into a context where, for example, white viewers don't have to feel they're under attack. They don't have to feel as though they are, are actually being accused of something. They can be detached in a way from their ordinary interests and anxieties, and in a way that allows them to kind of think of uh, these issues of justice in a very disinterested and, and more accurate kind of way. The same thing happens in, in the Harry Potter series with its, with its race war, so that in, in, a, in a curious way, fantasy can really probe reality. And, and the other direction, of course, don't, don't forget that what we're calling realism can also supply us with escapes. After all, think of uh, celebrity biographies. Uh, we could read them to escape our, our daily burdens or Think of the film Chariots of Fire about, you know, a, a celebration of a, of a sporting event from years ago or any kind of uh, sporting history. Those are as good a, an escape for a reality device as, uh, as a Marvel comic book. So, as I say, I'm, I'm a little un, unhappy. I don't think we have as strict a, a, a dichotomy here as was set up with the question. Sophie. Yes, well, I completely agree with Noel. I, I don't see these things as oppositional. I don't know about anyone else here, but I, I find reality very hard to be in anyway. I never feel fully in reality. I think it's impossible to, it's a word, but it doesn't mean the experience of being human. And as a documentary filmmaker, I'm, of course, in supposedly the real world, yet 
as soon as I film the real world, it's not real anymore. In fact, it becomes freighted and loaded with all kinds of possible senses um, that might be to do with what I've kind of culturally absorbed in terms of how I see what I see. So, I mean, I don't, I feel that narrative is, is something that we can, if we're distinguishing narrative from fantasy, as this question is that narratives are, to me, kind of quite crude methods for how to bring this complicated experience of reality into some kind of order. Mm. I, I enjoy the films that push me out of the neatness of narratives or plots that are, of, that are the, the mainstay of fiction. And I'm, I'm ready to kind of fall into these kind of strange, the strange experience of, of reality, which if I was trying to think about this before, really it's just when we're in time, if we're able to be, in the moment of time, that's as real as it can be. And that's really hard for us. I mean, that's what, you know, you have to meditate and push everything out of your head to be actually in the present moment and in the now. And when something of the real, in the sense of something traumatic happens, the first thing we do is we come out of our bodies. The first thing we say is, I don't, I did, I felt I left my body or time slowed down when we really encounter something really real like death or like giving birth uh you know so the these experiences so the nature of reality is already a kind of it doesn't exist in a simple way mm. of course at the same time you know fictions today are you know fascinated by the idea of reality which mm. is like nomadland is a good example of that because it's a film that tries to bring fiction and reality together in a seamless way and you well, can see you. how narrative is used to, to, to sort of try to make that happen. Thank you. Well, if I may then pick up, because really what you've said, I think very much takes us into the first part of, of what we're about to talk about this evening. You know, you, you've drawn attention to the, the, the blurry nature of reality. Noel's drawn attention to the fact that wandering away from reality into imagination can be a very powerful way of making it more real. So can I ask... First of all, perhaps we might touch on a definition of narrative and the definition of reality, if we can dare come up with one. But is it possible, therefore, for a narrative, whatever that means, to describe reality, whatever that means? No, perhaps you could kick off with that, you know, start set off from that definition you find earlier on. So is it possible to describe reality? Well, sure. I think that people think they hit a problem when they wonder whether or not it would be possible to have what you could call an absolute narrative. There's a narrative that says everything that could be possibly said from every angle of, about some subject matter. And of course, that kind of narrative is, is not possible. It would be the kind of God's eye view. But I think that too often in our conversations, we say it's impossible to have that kind of narrative and think that we can sort of run that down the flagpole to whether or not we could have narratives. For example, we, we were talking earlier before we came on air, Betty Sue was giving us a narrative of what's going on in Austin, Texas. That uh, was possible to give that narrative and it was possible to describe it perfectly well. But, you know, narratives are always going to be told from an angle. They'll be asking questions that require certain answers. So actually, that kind of absolute narrative is impossible. But in fact, we probably don't want that anyway. It would be too cluttered. 
what we want is an, an, a narrative that describes something from the kind of angle that that interests us. So, yeah, I think it's possible to have have narratives uh, of, of all sorts, as here in the United States. We want to get a narrative of what happened on January 6th. I think that that's going to be available. But what's not going to be available uh, is is something like, oh, I don't know, the kind of narrative that Egel uh, promised us or some kind of narrative that tells you everything you want to know about everything. Eddie, what do you make of that? Yeah, I just have find myself agreeing with Noel and Sophie, and Sophie made a very good point that realism exists in the present moment that can only be accessed. It, you know, it, it it's just in the present, only in the present, and then it goes. Mm. And then we make a story of the past and the future. You can't make a story, a narrative of the present moment, which is the only place that's real at the moment. So there's something very, as I said, there's something very weird about reality, but we need narratives. We need narratives for understanding. And sometimes understanding is an escape. And sometimes understanding we can understand through a fantasy that's untrue. Sometimes understanding uncovers something. So I I think in a way that the power of narrative operates in so many different dimensions for so many different purposes. I find when I've read science fiction from the past, they're really good about predicting things like automobiles and submarines and, you know, the equipment, but the characters like the portrayal of women, they, they clank, they, they, they reek of the 19th century or they reek of whatever. So it's easier for us to imagine the things of the future than a different human being experience of the future. It's it's interesting where our limitations lie. I just wanted to say no. one, one fast thing, and I thought that uh, Betty Sue made a very good point. Certain narratives require retrospection. For example, you couldn't have said that the Battle of Stalingrad was the decisive battle of World War II the day it began. We had to be in the future of that to say it was the turning point of the war. We couldn't have said it until sometime in the second half of, of the 40s. So uh, I, I think that the point Betty Sue was making about narratives and narratives of the present is a, is a very important one to make. The future changes, and then when the future changes, the significance of, of events in the past changes. And we can't know them until we live in the future. Hmm. Do you not, though, think, though, Noel, that sometimes when events are so fraught, we do have this unerring feeling that we are actually at a pivotal moment in something? You know, there are certain moments when you really do know that, you know, the brown stuff is hitting the fan for the entire race, for example. Well, I don't know. In, in, in the 80s and the 90s, everybody thought they were in a postmodern period. Then, then 9-11 came and now we're here. And I think we've all forgotten postmodernism. Sophie, earlier on, Noel made the suggestion that, you know, the, the ultimate view of reality is an extremely detailed picture of everything, an overwhelm of data, too much information. That would be rather boring to read, I would imagine. As a filmmaker, it seems you have to be so sin a needle through that of many things, pick out one or two things. I mean, Absolutely. does that inform yeah. the way that you work? Yes, I mean, of course, it's this kind of completionist notion is impossible. And um, I'm really... Sort of, sorry? Is it a temptation to try and do it? No, I mean, it, it, it would be folly. <laughs> I mean, I think the interesting thing, and I think what Betty Sue was saying about how important narrative is for us, 
is true. It's the only way that we can make sense of, of where we are and, and what Noel was saying about being understanding the, the past only from the future. And um, I think that the, it goes deep into our sense of how we create meaning. And I mean, just talking about, you know, recently that we have this character, Dominic Cummings, who was running the whole of the government and now suddenly kind of it's the revengeous tragedy and he's now telling everything and taking everything apart. And, you know, he had to reference, you know, it was like an Independence Day or he wanted to make me the mayor in Jaws. And it was interesting to see how he reached for narratives to try to communicate his experience. But I mean, there was a study that was done in Germany that really interested me about 10 years ago. I was hearing about it where they found that when people were going to go into a very stressful exam situation, that if they spent half an hour before talking about their family and the story of their family and who their father was or who the, they would talk about this and it would suddenly, they would excel in their exam. It was this creation of the myth of origins of themselves that gave them this ability to be who they were, as it were, to perform themselves through having created this backstory of their family and their their origins. So it, it, it's really fascinating. We, I, in answer to this question, I would say yes. I mean, I think that we need narratives to understand the world, but only in very fragmented moments. And of course, you know, the brilliantly crafted narratives always feel that they relate to the present moment. Very interesting. That seems to be touching on something quite profound, is that narrative is built into the well, perhaps the unconscious or whatever you want to call it, parts of the human central nervous system, you know. We're talking about something that's almost biological, this need for narrative. If it can have that effect on German exam sitters, you know, it's that potent. Well, they've got a slightly complicated backstory too. So, <laughs> Indeed, you know. sure. But it seems to be saying that, you know, narrative from a human point of view is effectively an edit function on reality, you know, and you run your best edit available for the moment, it seems, what you're saying. But I want to come back to the second point, is this idea of fantasy, you know, to taking it out there, drifting away from the theme of uh, what you call reality. Can we ever get free from our personal context, uh, the store of narratives in our human mind? I mean, is it possible to make a fantasy that has nothing to do with reality? Completely out there. Uh, no, you could come back to that one. I don't think it is possible because no narrative can say everything about its story world that you need to understand it. We readers or viewers, we have to fill it in. And the author has to also have some idea of, of what we're capable of filling in. And what's that going to be made up of? Well, mostly of our shared world and our presuppositions about our shared world. Betty Sue is making the point about how the women in the older science fictions were portrayed in a highly sexist manner. And, you know, that's how the readers would have understood them because they, they lived in a sexist culture. Just as we have to fill in the fact that uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, has a four-chambered heart, we also have to fill in that uh, women are weak when we're reading the 19th century novel for it to be intelligible. So even if you could change all of the surface details, you'll never be able to get away from all of the presuppositions that the contemporary audience shares with the contemporary writer. And by the way, if you could get rid of all of that, none of the contemporary audience would understand it. Mm. Yeah. Betty Zoo. 
Yes, I, I think that's deeply true. The one time I was involved in editing a film, I was asked in as a story editor because the young man, it was his first feature length film and he had run out of money, but the two stars had no chemistry. So the love story that ended with a kiss was not believable. It was just not working and he had no money to hire these actors again. So then here's the thing about narrative is a string in time, A, B, C, D. It's a, simply by moving the kiss earlier, you kind of felt that their relationship was sort of falling apart just by moving the kiss earlier in the film so that their lack of chemistry just made the relationship problematic rather than ending with the kiss. So we bring time to anything we look at in time. We, we can't escape time. The essence of narrative is, is time. So um, the sequence in which things happen have meaning. The sequence itself has meaning. I, I don't think we can escape. <laughs> we can't escape from the context that we bring to everything. I think Noel's very right about that. Sophie, you know, as a filmmaker, does that resonate with your efforts you know, to get your pitch for the next movie across to someone? You, do you have to resonate just the right amount with you know what, I'm, I'm really sorry. I just can't talk about pitching. It's just the most boring part of my job. Well, what I'm saying is trying to get the thing viewed and watched. Well, you know, the thing is that actually the way that I find that I actually get things pitched is when I impersonate the people in the footage and I start saying this is Grace does. Grace Jones speaks like this. She says that or I. I find that I impersonate to communicate it as a performative thing. You know, that's what really makes it land. And what I wanted to talk about was if we step outside of the idea that we're in our intellectual register, I've made films, you know, in a Pentecostal church where people are trying to experience something in a different kind of dimension, where they let go of a certain kind of logic a certain kind of story. The story propels them into a state of speaking in tongues where the language doesn't make sense. And I've never taken hallucinogenic drugs, but it's interesting people who take ayahuasca, what they describe as just what they, they have to find the language for something that happens in their brain chemistry. So I think when we talk about what's outside of reality, you know, we lose our moorings in our sense of how language works for us. And, and that's kind of liberating. And I think that probably goes back very far, you know, this sense of a trance state mm -hmm. that is a state that is kind of outside story, as it were, outside narrative. I would yeah. love to get the people that I pitched to into a trance state. <laughs> and, and I did once, actually, when I was trying to get the money for this Pentecostal film that I made called Hoover Street Revival. And I'd filmed a baptism, a woman being prayed up with the Bible, with the words from the Bible, and the words from the Bible have this very uncanny effect. And I played it to the executive at the BBC and I just played it. And I just said, what's happening for you? And there's a point where, you know, they're all speaking in tongues and he could feel this strange effect of it. And he commissioned the film. So, you know, sometimes going through logic isn't the best way to argue for, for meaning in this way, but it's something more human and it, it's not necessarily going to make sense in the sense that language and words tell us that that is where sense lies. So that's why I'm a filmmaker, because I work in images and images don't have meaning in the sense that language does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Staying with your, 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 your profession for a sec, I mean, 
Betty Sue seemed to be saying, you know, that the shifting of the kiss in the story that she told us, what a fascinating you know, twist of narrative there. I mean, is it the fact then that, you know, that the editor is even more important than the writer and the director <laughs> in the sense of creating this narrative? I mean, the, the, the fact they can have such a powerful effect in that way, I mean, you know, rearranging things in this narrative, is, is that something that, you know, is that just a stock and trade in your craft? Yeah, I, I think... Um... I think it is for the narrative part of it, but I'm reminded of, I think it was the Andy Warhol movie that was 33 hours of the Empire State Building or something. He just set eight. the, what was it? Eight? Empire State, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he just set the camera there. People actually went in the movie theater and watched it because it was a vent and the light changed, but you couldn't say that it had a narrative really to it. But the but you're quite right. The image is not a narrative, but we when we contemplate an image, we build a context around it, and often that context is a story. It's very mm. hard to keep us uh, from doing that. Poetry sometimes tries to distance us from the narrative through words, from the narrative aspect of imagery. It tries to to keep us from making a story by continually interrupting a narrative. Oh, I just want to say we should also remember the editing can destroy it. Orson Welles, when he yeah. saw, saw what had been done to the magnificent Amberson, said, who edited this, the studio gardener? Who, <laughs> who, 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 turned, who turned out that was Robert Wise, oh. Sound of Music. <laughs> wow, yes. I mean, okay. I, I, yes, I mean, for me, editing is the most fascinating process, particularly documentary editing, because you don't have the spine of a narrative that you follow. You're trying to forge sense and cognitive mapping and the cognitive following of something that so you work very carefully with um not with meaning but with cognition mm -hmm. and so uh it was interesting in so with some students where I, I teach at ucl and i brought an editor in um and someone had made a, one of the students had made this cut and it was full of words and the editor went through and said actually there's one idea here and now we need some breathing space. We, we you know, mm. let us absorb it. So with editing, it's all about, you know, it's not just about what's in the words, even though if words in poetry mm. describe images, it, they're still taking us into something visual. And musical. I was a very experienced editor when I was asked to do the first cut of the Joseph Campbell and the Power of Myth series for, for PBS. So I did the first cut on paper, never having edited film before. I went up to New York to look at it in Bill Moyer's uh, office and I threw out my whole edit because while it made sense mentally, the energy of Joseph Campbell and Bill, it you couldn't edit it the way I edited it by the ideas. You had to edit, you had to edit the music. I, I don't know how else to put it, the music of the energy. And that was just such a different kind of edit. I learned how to do that, but that's why I did the book, which is really different, even though it uses the same transcripts, because it's edited totally differently. It's a very different experience from the film. Same words, edited totally differently. Yes, music. I mean, Walter Murch, being the sort of, you know, preeminent editor, of, thinks, you know, listens to Beethoven and uses this sense of shift of rhythms is totally informing how he's thinking about editing. So in music... Because they're time-based. Yeah. Is, is, uh, rhythm is crucial to editing. Yes. I must say, that in my work as a doctor, a psychiatrist, seeing very, very distressed people, probably the most powerful thing is silence, space between the notes, as it were. 
and uh, and I think we often forget that you know that that, that is part and parcel of the well the narrative process. But I'm fascinated, Sophie, by this editing idea because when does the editing process actually begin? From what you're saying about your pitch to the BBC man with the woman who was talking in tongues, the edit had begun already. I mean, did that you playing that tape at that particular moment with that executive actually change the prominence of that particular clip or even the entire story? Had yes, the edit begun before you started making the movie? I, I, I guess there is a there is a sort of sense of a selection, although actually my, for me, the discipline in editing is to always allow for an idea you haven't had yet that might throw everything in a different direction. So I'm always trying to keep myself open to possibility rather than, you know, within the, you're trying to reduce something down, you have to reduce it down, but you might suddenly see, you have to be open to what the material can do, really, because it's always going to do more through its strange agency of its materiality as film, as image, as captured time, that you have to find out what it can do so this, I think, made a fascinating point. You know, given that the brain is, I think we've established, is an editing organ or has a, a very sophisticated edit function in the human brain, which is driven by emotion and cognition, could we generalise that rule, you have to be open from the world of filmmaking to the world of being a human being, alive and living a good life? I really want to say that, you know, we can extrapolate from editing in movies to constructing more healthy narratives for the world around us, that we can live. We need to... Um frame the phenomena that we're dealing with. There's so much of it out there. You know, William James called it a, a blooming, buzzing uh, reality. So, I mean, o- openness is good, of course, but o- openness has to be uh, uh, governed by certain kinds of frameworks. It's over-enthusiastic and optimistic to say that we always should be open at all, all points. We should be open relative to our activities and, and what what our interests are while we're involved. The kind of openness that that uh, we're talking about in terms of an editor has to do with things like the rhythm, uh, how you want to hold and shape the attention of the audience. You might want to, you know, uh, have a series of three-second cuts because you, you, you want people to be uh, sitting up and very alert. Openness is not wide openness. Openness mm. is always openness in a context. It's interesting. A lot of the conversation we're using here is related to very much the visual. Of course, we're talking with a with a very experienced filmmaker here joining us. But um, you know, there's not much reference to literature, novels, poems in the conversation so far. All of which have narratives of their own. I mean, do you think we're heading towards more and more of a a, a telematic world, as it were, when we think about narratives? I mean, I can answer that by saying that actually, you know, for me, poetry is 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 my um, it informs me hugely. I I think poetry is um, is more and more, um, you know, with certainly with spoken word poetry, uh, it really has a huge place in 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 the culture now. And going back to your question about about sort of openness, I think that kind of utopian idea of that we can become sort of better people. Is um it, it is more kind of it, it there's it feels a bit dangerous to me. Whereas what we can learn from other forms like theatre, poetry is understanding simply understanding a little bit more how how where we are in our lives on the trajectory of of, of anyone's life. There's so much to really gather from that, and I really here I'm here to really just give you give you all a, a direction that I really suggest people check into, which is these podcasts by the theatre director, Declan Donnellan of Cheek by Jowl, 
fantastic podcast called Not True But Useful. These podcasts that you can find on the website from someone, uh, Declan Donlan and Nick Ormerod, who have worked for 40 years with classics, great classics of the theatre, Shakespeare, Chekhov, and, and just the, the way that they have de- created a kind of philosophy of their process really is the most fascinating stuff I've been listening to. Um, and, you know, I really recommend people to check into this podcast series, Not True But Useful, because it's just brilliant insights, utterly brilliant insights into how we work. So we don't necessarily become better, but it does lean into an awareness of how we are, how we might be if we were this or that character to who we are in the life that we're living in this moment. I make this decision. I say this. Did I, did I go too far? Did I not say enough? You know, the, theatre really allows us to think, pushes us to think on our feet. Well, it seems we're going to have to be doing an awful lot more of thinking on our feet if we're going to stay alive as a species, the way things are going at the moment. And can I ask, you know, where is this, this fundamental talent of the human, the human being has been raised going to take us in the future, do you think? I perhaps, but you see, you might want to start with that one. I mean, will our narratives become more or less realistic as the world goes on? Well, I I wouldn't predict, but I would say that as we live more and more in narrative podcasts, watching films twenty four seven, certainly COVID has been oddly narrative in the sense of <laughs> nothing happening in our lives, but we spend twenty four seven watching television or Netflix or whatever. So I, I think that uh, if we learn that we, the future is only and always a fiction and mm. that we can tell better fictions, it's not just an extrapolation of the past. It, the, the, only, the past is a story. The future is also a story, a fiction, not based on facts like the, like the past. So I think great literature can um, help us learn to be empathetic towards other people if we read it feelingly. And that understanding of our interconnectedness can help us build a better, better narratives about um, <laughs> that might save the planet. We, we, we don't know how to build narratives about how we're interconnected. We're, we're still in the hero myth. That's the best story of all. And it's mm. an individualistic story. And we don't have good stories of being together and going on quest together. We, we just we haven't done that. So uh, we need a whole lot more fiction <laughs> to tell tell better stories about the future. I mean, does, does anyone does, does everyone share that view, or is it something that we think we we can counter by you know figure trying to imagine new ways in which we might approach it? I mean, I guess one thing I would mention uh, that follows up on what Betty Sue is talking about is during the twenties, the the Soviet constructivist montagist filmmakers attempted to introduce a figure they. They, they, they talked about as the, the mass hero or the, the collective hero. A, a good example of that is in, in, in the film, The Battleship Potemkin. There is no single hero in The Battleship Potemkin. You have the different episodes. Uh, there are different figures in, in the different a- episodes, but the, uh, the, there's, not, there's not a sing- single hero, but uh, there's a kind of movement. Uh, and that experimentation, partly because of un- unfortunate events in the Soviet Union having to do with Stalinism and the, the enforcement of socialist realism, really uh, ended that kind of experimentation. But it, it might be interesting to, to, to try and re- reimagine that, that, that notion of a mass hero in the way, for example, Vertov in Man with a Movie Camera 
that he has the, the movie cameraman as a central figure, but really uh, the, the, the hero is Russia, Russia rebuilding itself. So uh, it, it would involve a kind of level of, of, of formal experimentation that would involve, uh, let's say, abandoning the, the, the Marvel s- superhero. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, if there's a collective hero in, in that, it's, uh, it's the Avengers as a group, but they're, they're, a, bump, they're a group of singular heroes. They're, they're, not a, they're not a mass hero. And uh, maybe uh, this would be an in- interesting, interesting question as to whether or not documentaries uh, could be made to deal with things like climate change that would enlist that model of the, the mass or collective hero. I, I, I think the thing that, that it's fascinating and I'm, I'm really interested in and really enjoyed, you know, this idea of thinking about what would the narratives of the future be and how might those be really useful. And I think that the first thing that strikes me is this question of really approaching fear. I mean, fear is really hugely it's the motivating force not desire but fear mm-hmm. and this question of the collective i mean it, so long as you've got profit driven entities co-opting the space for documentaries you know they will drive for the heroic for the adrenalized story um and that's really frustrating mm-hmm. because um they have a they are they have an extraordinary opportunity to to handle it um, in a, to communicate it. I mean, I was developing a, a film with an extraordinary collective of climate change lawyers who uh, that are part of this brilliant um, organisation called Client Earth, and I was really struck by this tribe of brilliant young lawyers, all under the kind of um, driven by an, a pos- sense of possibility from a much older lawyer who is actually from a sort of counterculture American legal context, but working in the UK. And I, I really saw the complexity of what they're dealing with, the courage it takes, the immersion in a lot of detail. And that's not a film that you could easily get, you know, great visibility for because people aren't ready to look at those problems. They want a heroic solution. And these, these lawyers are, for me, kind of brilliant. I just wanted to quickly say, I, you know, I think that the existing conventions of the documentary are probably more open to developing collective heroes than the existing conventions of the fiction film. So you have work to do. <laughs> Why is that, No. In part, maybe because some of the um, some of the subjects that are, are being examined uh, 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 require interviewing or, or incorporating a large number of people, especially if it's a big big social event. That might be one reason that that the material calls for incorporating a, a larger number of voices. Yes, I agree. I, I agree with you about the documentary uh, completely. I think it's a very good insight. And I, I think the reason is that the documentary expresses reality uh, more closely than the hero myth, because really we are more interconnected as a species than the hero myth often gives. Who was it who said, uh, we shall not have civilization until the last brave man is dead? I, I forget what philosopher said that, but but the hero myth 
is plays on this understanding of reality as just individual in the West. And it's much more interconnected than that. We know this by climate change and the documentary because it shows reality more than, than the fictionalized yeah. adventurer stories is bound to show so, more people together. Except that the problem is, is that there's a huge pressure on documentary to create plots and fictions and narratives and to create heroes. And, you know, that's the problem is that, you know, trying to kind of climb out from underneath that, that, um, that pressure to create something that's going to entertain um, it, 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 it makes it very difficult. I mean, it won't be, it will be happening on the fringes. And really, if you talk to anyone in climate change, it's like, you know, all the people who are mining fossil fuels just have to stop. And that has to happen in order for the world to rebalance. Yeah. It's, it's not that I mean, we have to change the whole infrastructure of how power is supplied. But you know, there's 350 coal power plants about to be built in Vietnam, Southeast Asia, you know, mm. that those have to stop. How do you stop those? You know, how documentary filmmakers can't really change the world. I think that puts them in the position of being heroes, whereas actually the process is, uh, it's not like there's an, a sort of solution that can be provided. There's a process, the process that has to happen at, at levels that documentary filmmakers can't really reach very easily because the, the, the platforms are looking to make profits. Sophie, earlier on, you mentioned that the, this constraint is driven by fear. You know, I think it was Auden that said, fear like frost will freeze the flood of thought. You know, it'll constrain our thinking. But earlier, earlier on, um, I think uh, Noel mentioned that Planet of the Apes was a successful movie because it removed the fear that white people had of being judged as racist. I mean, can we use these ideas, you know, to, to, to shift the narrative sideways so that something diffuses the fear about climate change. It's an appeal, an Attenborough-like appeal, perhaps, to the collective. I mean, is there not a direction in which our imagination can go to defuse the fear and then sell the collective story of the hero? I think Greta Thunberg did that as, as a real person who kind of stood against this, um, you know, all of the obfuscation of what had to be done. And, you know, the, the, these things might not happen in perfectly shaped documentary narratives, they might be erupting through social media kind of narratives that are just kind of like like viruses that are spreading, that are, you know, suddenly inspiring children to not go to school. And to, you know, I mean, I went on the first children's climate strike in London. It was extraordinary. And, you know, all these kids standing, blocking Whitehall and chanting F Theresa May, you know, like right outside Downing Street. The experience of that is was bigger than the possibility to capture it mm. in that sense. You know, I, I think that uh, these narratives are exploding all around us right now, but we need a change to be made at really high levels. And it's hopefully happening. You know, Biden is certainly, you know, making serious, you know, efforts now, but you have to look a lot at the, at the greenwashing as well, mm. as the narratives of the greenwashing uh, are put in front of what big corporations are actually doing. But this narrative is extremely complex around climate and the fear is an understandable fear because actually a lot of the narrative frame of even David Attenborough is, is inducing a certain kind of fear that is a paralysis. Not mm. that, you know, I don't love seeing those Zoom shots or, you know, drones over the North Pole. 
But actually, when you hear people like there's that um, American climate scientist who's written a book recently called Climate Wars, which is re- very interesting on. And he says, you know, as scientists and he he was talking about this 30 years ago, he was saying we can change. Nature will come back. You know, we can't we don't have to be thinking that this is an apocalyptic thing. We, we're addicted to the to the narrative of apocalypse mm-hmm. and closure. And actually, we need to sort of, there's always an and after it. You know, it's yeah. a process. Not the end of history, no. Well, I, I, what you say is so interesting because it made me think, why don't we have documentaries of, of success? I mean, say, reforesting an area or wind, wind devices being set up in, in various places. I mean, I hate to go back to the Soviet example, but why, why don't we don't have these narratives of, of, of success. So instead of uh, leaving the audience uh, in, in quaking uh, with fear of apocalypse, uh, you have them feeling like, well, I, I, I think I'll go and plant a garden or take some affirmative action. I, I, I don't know if uh, you have any thoughts about it. Why, why is it that we don't have any, I can't think of, maybe they exist, but I can't think of any recent, um, very memorable documentaries of climate, I call it resistance or climate affirmative action uh, documentaries. Well, uh, there aren't any of those as far as I can tell, are there? Thank you, Sue. got a take on that. I'll try to take both those things into account because I think we are addicted to apocalypse. Apocalypse sells, fear sells. I've been involved in the last several years writing a a narrative about a positive future meeting Paris with MIT modeling. So it's never going to sell because the way to get there is so complicated, but we can get there. Uh, But to spell it out so that people who are in decision-making places and government can actually say, okay, if we do 5% this year, that it will, it will work out. You know, we've shown a pathway. So I've worked with the government of Malaysia. There are a lot of governments around the world who say, okay, what is the pathway to meeting Paris? How can we do it in our country using modeling, using real, you know, not just a fairy tale. So it can be done, but that kind of story is not entertaining and you can't, it's a kind of boring thing I've written. Uh, but it allows the poor people of the world who otherwise get their coal plants shut down. Yes. Mm. But it allows them to have a better life. So mm. you have to take that into account as we go forward. So it's got to be a process and not an overnight cut, shutting off of so, things. Does, does that mean that we're doomed by the fact that the devil always gets the best life? <laughs> yes. Satan is much more interesting in Milton than God, for heaven's sake. Well, you have to, as I say, going back to those podcasts, not true but useful, the whole kind of idea of what's our motivation and what Declan Donnellan shows is that, in fact, there is always predicament coming at us and we're actually motivated by trying to stop the disaster happening. And so I think that when we do see things that are frightening, it's a kind, I mean, I watched one of those Scandi Noir the other day and I was absolutely terrified. I had to do it as a, from a point of view of research. And, you know, I, I could see how my body was preconditioned to, to be responsive to fear yeah. in a way that in real life I, I hope I never encounter. Yeah. But, you know, so I think we are kind of, we have to take responsibility for our own addiction to these things. Well, I would like to add one more thing. Uh, we live in a, a culture of cynicism. And to a certain extent, I don't think we would accept 
particularly optimistic or affirmative accounts. If you think back to uh, all the old kinds of television documentaries, uh, uh, you know, the wonders of nuclear power, uh, what, what nuclear power will be able to give us. A very optimistic kind of documentary. I think that large parts of the audience would just be too cynical and they would just mm-hmm. d- dismiss optimism out, out of hand. So I don't think it's not just that fear gets more adrenaline. Uh, I, I think there's also a kind of cynical reaction that more or less coincides with the kind of uh, cynicism that we seem to have about our civilizations have uh, with regard to most of our institutions. It's really what what, what Betty was saying is that it's boring because, you know, you really have to immerse in detail to see where the process really is at. And if you're going to be pacified by, you know, BP is going to tweet its green future and everything is packaged green. And it's like it's a lot of work to actually understand this field and it's the question of it's not necessarily between you know um sort of optimism and fear it's actually like work it's a kind of Mm -hmm. duty to understand much more and to listen to the people and take the time to understand it without these kinds of you know uh, sort of emotional responses Mm -hmm. i'm thinking of this theme of fear that has run through so much and thinking that the opposite of fear is not courage, but love. Mm. And wondering about the new narratives of love that aren't just romantic love, but what those would look like and how they would be enabling of a different kind of way forward for humankind. Mm. Well, it's very nice to end on such a wonderful and fearless note as that. So uh, let's leave it there. Thank you for Fantasy and Reality. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.